Father, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning. We thank you that you are here with us as we've gathered together, as we've sought to, as we're seeking, Lord, to, to draw closer to you. I pray that you will open your word up to us. I pray that you will open our hearts up to you, to hear you, open our ears up to hear you, and allow us to respond to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have someone in your life who can finish your sentences? Like Becky and I, we've been together about 17 years. We actually just, uh, just celebrated. We don't really celebrate, but we acknowledged our 17th anniversary of being engaged right before Christmas. And so we've been together for about 17 years. And, and throughout those 17 years, we've developed an uncanny ability, not just to finish each other's sentences, but to, to randomly burst out in the same song together or to uh, quote the same movie, you know, whatever. And, and it's always random ones or TV shows or, or we even lecture our kids with the same exact lectures. And, and I was just wondering, do you guys have someone in your life, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's just a close friend, that, that whenever you're together, you're constantly finishing each other's sentences and even as I'm saying this, I, I can imagine my wife is thinking the same thing I am. Every time I say finish each other's sentences, we jump in and say sandwiches instead because we watched Frozen. You guys seen Frozen? One of our kids watched it 28 times. In the, there's a line in the movie Frozen where they, they, you know, they finish each other's and they blurt sandwiches and I can't get... Anyways, so do you guys have someone in your life that can finish your sandwiches? can finish your sentences, someone that you're close enough to. And I, I think this happens because in our love for each other, for our friends, for our spouses, we've gotten to know each other, right? We've, we've shared experiences together. We've watched Frozen 28 times together. No, okay, we haven't. We just put it on and, and leave the room. But, you know, we've laughed together and, and really developed a keen sense of what the other person is thinking or feeling. And our relationship with Christ is similar. Our love and our knowledge of Christ, they go hand in hand. The deeper that we love Christ, the, the deeper our understanding of him is and, and of what he's calling us to becomes. And, and so the, the more that we love Christ, the more that we know him and the more that we know what he's calling us to do and the more that we know Christ, conversely, the more that we also love him. The two go hand in hand. And wouldn't it be great to know Christ so deeply, to love him so deeply that we knew his thoughts and his feelings, that we knew what he was saying and calling us to all of the time. In Jesus' final week on earth, as he entered into the, the, the city of Jerusalem, he was being questioned by all of these religious leaders. They were asking him all of these questions, and they weren't doing so because they wanted knowledge. They weren't doing so because they wanted to know him more. They were doing so because they wanted to trap him and prove that, that he was a fraud and prove that he was not the Messiah. And so they were bringing up all these questions, and they asked him about the resurrection, and, and they were trying to trap him in what he said, and they were asking him about paying taxes, hoping that he would offend the, the, the Roman overlords, and they were asking him about his authority and all of these things, and Jesus answers all of these questions that they send to him and they give to him. And he does so, so well that the leaders go away frustrated at him. And they're frustrated because they could not 
publicly justify the hate that they had. They could not trap him in his words, and they couldn't find a reason to call him a fraud. And so they were frustrated, they were angry, they were hateful of him. And in one last attempt to to make Jesus look bad, a teacher of the law comes up with one more question. And it's the question that he asks that I want to read and, and examine in the scripture this morning. So if you have a Bible, open with us to Mark chapter 20. <laughs> Mark does not have 20 chapters. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 28 through 31. And so, as I said, there's, there's the teacher of the law who comes up, and he asks Jesus this question. And verse 28 says exactly that. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. There was this endless debate amongst the scholars, amongst the scribes and the lawyers and the teachers of the Jewish law about what the greatest commandment was. They weren't, he wasn't just asking Jesus this random off-the-cuff question, but, but there's this con- continuous debate that they had about which of the commandments of the Bible was the greatest. See, there are 613 commandments in the Bible, according to the scribes. 365 of those are negative commands. 248 are positive commands. And so there's a huge number of commands. Now, a negative command, I think we understand, do not touch, do not taste, do not covet your neighbor's wife. A positive command, something like honor your father and mother. Kids, I want you to pay special attention to that one. My kids are upstairs sitting there. Honor your father and mother. Love the Lord, right? Like there's, there's all of these positive commands that are given as well. And, and, and with so many commands, with so many things that we're told to do and to not do, the debate raged on as to which were the most important ones. And it was important for them to understand which of the, the commands were the most important because they, they couldn't follow all 613 of them. They couldn't keep track and make sure to follow every single commandment of the Bible. So they needed to know which are the big ones that I really have to pay attention to and which are the little ones that I can pay less attention to. And figuring that if they they focused on the big ones and got the big ones right, God might show favor on them and overlook the little ones. So they debated constantly about which of the commandments were the most important And knowing that everyone in the crowd had a different opinion, and knowing that everyone had had a different, most important commandment that they followed, the teacher of the law asked Jesus to chime in. And he's hoping to either catch him in saying something that would upset one of the factions of the crowd. Or or maybe he's just asking out of genuine curiosity. Jesus answers perfectly and his answer satisfies everyone because it's the perfect summation of the entire law love God and love others it's important I believe for us to understand that Jesus is not saying here that if we follow these two commandments that we'll get into heaven there's only one way into heaven 
by receiving the free gift of salvation that's offered through Jesus' shed blood, through his death and resurrection. And there are churches in this world, there are cults in this world, there are other religions in this world that tell us that if we simply follow all of the commandments, that if we do enough stuff, that if we follow the rules, we'll make it to heaven. Or if we just try harder, that we will please God. There, there are other churches and stuff that say that if we just sincerely love everyone, that if we just have a sincere love for everyone, that that's enough and that will get us into heaven. It is not. We need Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way into heaven except through Jesus. And as an outflow of the salvation that we receive from him, as we believe in him, as an outflow of that salvation, there comes a love and a knowledge of both God and Jesus Christ. So in order for us to know Christ, as our, as our church's mission statement directs us to, in order for us to do that fully, I believe that we must first love God completely and love others as ourself. The greatest commandment that's given in the Bible is taken directly from the Shema, which is a passage of the Bible in Deuteronomy that was so important to the Jewish people, that was so important that they were told that it is to be taught to their children as they come and they go. It was the scripture that they would write on a piece of parchment and they'd place it in these little boxes called phylacteries and they would wear them on their wrists and they'd wear them on their foreheads. And every morning, good Jewish people would recite the Shema and they'd recite it every evening in prayer. Yet they allowed it to merely become words. You know, sometimes we, we hear the Lord's Prayer. And it's just, written, it's just spoken over and over again. And, and it gets to that point where we stop thinking about what it means. And we just have it so memorized that it's just meaningless. And I think that's the same experience that was happening here with the, the Jewish people. They knew the words, love the Lord your God. But it becomes so rote that they'd forgotten what it truly meant. Jesus did not just say to them, to us, that we need to love God. But he says that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. The big idea is that we are to love God with all that we are. With, with everything that we have, we're to love the Lord our God. And each area that Jesus mentions here is unique and it's specific. So to love God with our heart is something that I think we all fairly well understand is to love him with our emotions it's the kind of love i think that we're most familiar with in our society this this emotional feeling of love and it's important that we love god with our feelings but it's important to also know that that our love can not solely be based on feelings so our love cannot be devoid of feelings our emotions have to be engaged in order for us to experience love, but neither can, can our feelings be the sole basis. And that's because feelings change, right? The way that I feel about the Minnesota Vikings, it used to be described as love. Now it's indifference. You know, feelings change based on situations, based on the things that we go through. Feelings can grow, feelings can shrink, feelings can, you know, depending on how much sleep we had, can, can completely disappear. 
you know, sometimes I get a little tired and cranky and my feelings get angry, right? I, I tend to, I, sometimes I'm, I know Pastor Paul said last week that, that doing a New Year's resolutions always fail. And it's, the statistics on it are overwhelming, how, how often New Year's resolutions fail. But, but I took the dive, and, and it wasn't even necessarily New Year's resolution, but I'm dieting this month. I'm just trying to lose a few pounds before I get into marathon training so that marathon training can go well. And, and one of the things that happens during dieting is I get hangry. You know, hungry, angry. Uh, if you've never seen the Snickers commercials, you know exactly. Uh, my feelings right now border on obsession for food or anger that I'm not eating food. My feelings change right after dinner to contentment. And so what I'm trying to say is our feelings change, right? And our feelings towards people, even, even the people that we love, our feelings can change. And so if the feelings are the sole basis of our emotional or our responsive love to God, then it's not going to be enough. They're going to change because feelings can be fickle. So we need to love the Lord our God with more than just our hearts. We need to love him with our hearts, but we must also love him with our soul as well. And here, the Bible is speaking about the inner self. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water, for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My my soul thirsts for God, the living God. And Psalm 63, which is one of my favorite psalms, says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Think about the imagery of what God is saying there, that, that our soul is to love and to desire him so much. It's, it's like our body as we're going through the desert is longing for water. Even more than that, we are to, to desire God. We're to, to thirst for him. Our soul, our inner being is, is to long for God like our physical body longs for water or, or a deer is panting for the stream and after a, a long run. The truth of our souls is that they will long for something. There's, there's a yearning in our souls to be satisfied with, with Christ, quite honestly. But if we do not satisfy our, our souls with Christ and with God, it will long for anything. It will look for anything to fill it. Be it power or money or sex or position or security or whatever it is, it is Our souls are going to long for something, but it is only in Christ that our souls can be quenched. Jesus is the living water. He says, whoever drinks the water that he gives will never thirst again. Our souls, we must not allow them to thirst after the things of this world, the things that will leave us empty and dry, but rather we must be filled with Jesus Christ. So we're to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We are called to love God with our intellectual capacity. Our love for God is not to be this mindless, check-your-brain-at-the-door kind of understanding of him. Our love for God is, is to be involving all of our mental capabilities and our understanding. In other words, we're, we're to love God by testing the words that the preacher says. You know, so I, I hope that you guys just don't take the words that I'm saying and say, well, Sean said it, so it must be true. But you're checking those with what the Scripture says. 
We're to love God by, by looking at the words that the scientists say and not just believing what they say as well, but testing what they say against what the Bible says. And we know to be true. But then also realizing that the Bible is, is not simply a document that, that speaks only about religion, but it, but it has information in it as well that, that it can be scientific. And so the two work together, and we don't have to just check our brain at the door and stop believing that, that science and, and the Bible can't coexist, but we can see how they can coexist. We can see that faith is not exclusive from intelligence, but they are mutually compatible. You know, and quite honestly, as a church here, I don't think that our love for God through our mind is struggling. I think that one of the things that our church has going for it is that we have a deep understanding of the scriptures. But I think sometimes we rely too heavily on the love of God in our minds and we fall short in other areas. So we we know why we believe what we believe. We know what the scriptures say And we know what it means intellectually to follow Christ. But in other areas, we may fall short. So I I mentioned, you know, I'm trying to get healthy and and lose a few pounds. And and so I've been in the gym. One of the things I'm doing in the gym is kind of that that Pilates yoga thing, just trying to stretch and get my joints so that I can bend down and touch my toes. Life goals, right? Touching your toes. And, and, And so I've been at the gym a lot, and I don't like to weight lift. I don't, maybe I'm just not good at it, and I'm not trying to poke fun at weightlifters here because honestly, they could crush me. But I'm, one of the things that, that you see in a lot of weightlifters is they love, I know Carl's over there, he's like, watch it. Uh, one of the things that you see in, in weightlifters is a love to work out their arms and their upper bodies, right? Because it's really cool to, to get this huge, upper body with these bulging biceps that, that when you flex can tear the shirt. I think it's cool. I'm never going to get there. But you know, like, and so, so one of the stereotypes we have of weightlifters is that oftentimes they skip leg days. And they skip anything that's not their upper body because they want to walk around with like these massive muscles that all of us are like, wow, that's amazing. And, and, and they do so though at the detriment of working out the other areas of their body. So, so some weightlifters have these huge upper bodies and tiny little twig legs. And it looks kind of funny, and it is kind of funny because if we're not properly balancing the way that we're, we're exercising, then we're going to over-exercise parts of our body. Or, or in the, the analogy, we're going to, to neglect the other areas that we are to love Christ in to the, because we want to, to love him so much in one area. There are legs and core muscles. There are other parts of our love for God and our understanding of God that we must continue to work out and hone to complete our physique of our mind and body spirit. Loving God with our mind is not bad but it does not complete our love for Christ any more than loving him with our emotions does. So heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love God with our minds, with our hearts, with our inner spirit, and our physical bodies as well. Our love for God cannot just be this theoretical love 
that is not acted upon, where our will is not engaged. Instead, our will and our bodies must be involved in our love for God for it to be true love. The Apostle James, I love his book because it's so plain. He states it so simply. He says this. He says, do not merely hear the word and so be deceived. Do what it says. Do what it says. The Apostle Paul in Romans says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are to do what the Bible says to do. We are to give ourselves to God so that he can conform us to his will, so that he can do with us as he pleases. If we do not act out our faith, if we do not live out our faith, if we do not act upon what we believe is true, then what good is our faith? Our works are to be a response to the grace that we have received. Our obedience is a response to what God has done and is continuing to do in our lives. It's not an attempt for us to receive grace or to earn God's favor. Our deeds must flow from our faith, but they still must flow. They don't earn us salvation. They don't earn us points with God, but we still must allow them to flow. Our love for God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind is demonstrated through how we love God with our strength. The natural outflow of our love for God is a love for people. If our love for God does not affect how we treat other people, if the love that God has given us does not affect how we love other people, then we need to examine whether we love him or really what we are doing is intellectually pursuing him. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, states it simply. He says, this is love, to keep his commands. Right? He says, the commands, to show love to God is to keep his commands. And then he, he further clarifies that, actually clarifies it three verses earlier in chapter 4, verse 21, where he says, and this is the command he has given us. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You know, often I think as a, in the church as a whole, we are taught that, that if you truly love God, you will keep the law. Yet the call to Christians is not to fulfill the law. Christ has already done that. Rather, we are called to love one another as we love ourselves. Our personal holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of the 613 things that the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day were saying that we had to do or had not to do. One of the great challenges, I think, in the church today is is this idea that, that if I just follow those things, I'm going to make Christ happy. I'm going to make God happy. That, that we can have checklist Christianity, but it's simply not true. We can do all of the do's and the don'ts of the Bible, and we can still not truly know who Jesus is. We can know what the Bible says. We can read the Bible and know what it says and still not know the Jesus of the Bible. That happens if we're not living the truth that is spoken in the Bible, that loving God is the first and greatest commandment, and it's accomplished through loving each other. We have to love with more than just words. 
with more than just an intellectual assent to the truth. We must love God and, and others with our actions. We cannot just know about God. It's not enough. We must know him personally. When we know God personally, we will love him. And our love for God will be made evident through our love for others. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us to, to really love someone? To love our neighbor, our brothers and our sisters? And, and I ask this question because I it's incredibly important for us not just to go away saying, I need to be more loving, right? That's, that's great. We all know that we need to be more loving. We all know that we need to be kinder. We all know that we need to stop eating that eighth piece of pizza or that full bag of chips, right? We know these things to be true. But if we don't know what it looks like in our lives, then, then we, we start to miss out on the application. And so the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, states in 1 John chapter 3, I think some really practical ways for us to love each other. And so if you have your Bible, let's turn in there now and let's examine Christ's word again. So 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He didn't just come to this earth. He didn't just come down here and say, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan. Do good, be kind, take care. Instead, Jesus demonstrated his love through his actions, and we are called to do the same. When the choice was presented to Jesus, he chose to selflessly give himself to us. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's, when he's being tempted by the devil, and, and he knew that there was going to be the choice to either lay down his life for us, or to, to go and pursue his own thing, he selflessly chose to lay down his life, to give himself to us. This is how he demonstrated his love. This is love. It's, it's not just the feeling, although like I said, the feelings, the emotion, the heart is important and it has much to do with love. But love is an action. Love is a verb. Like the Good Samaritan in the parable that Jesus tells, who took care of the wounded traveler. He, he took time and he bandaged the, the, the wounded traveler's wounds. He provided him with food, provided him with a bed. He financially took care of his needs for a time. Just like that good Samaritan, we are called to love with the things that we have. You know, John mentions here that, that we are to give of our material possessions. So if I, if I see someone, if I have a, a brother who's hungry and I have a sandwich, I can share my sandwich with him. I can give him half my sandwich. If my brother-in-law you know, needs to borrow my reciprocating saw, I can freely loan it to him. I don't have to ask why this is the fourth time he's needed to borrow my reciprocating saw and hasn't decided to buy one himself. I don't have to wonder why he uses my saw more than I use it. Just so you know, this is a theoretical ponderance. This is not really the case. Okay, let's be honest. I can't lie. 
Anyways, we should continue. Um, Are there possessions that you have that are more important to you than the relationships with the people in your life? That are more important than the people around you? I'm kind of a geek. I love the Lord of the Rings. Over Christmas break, I watched it with our kids. It was a joy because Hayden finally was interested in watching it. So it's probably the fourth time I've watched or read the books, maybe more than that. Um, It's a commitment, right? It's like three and a half hours. We have the extended edition DVD, so they're three and a half to four hours each. There's three of them, so it's a good 12-hour commitment in life. Anyways, the Lord of the Rings, sorry, I I digress. The Lord of the Rings center around this ring of extreme power, right? It's it's, it's a magical ring that that has the ultimate power, and it's an object that's so sought after that, that nearly everyone is willing to kill or be killed to possess it. Repeatedly, the ring is called my precious by everyone who wants it by different characters of the book. So consumed by the affection that they have for the ring, these characters lose all kindness and love that they have for each other as they can only focus on this possession, this precious ring. What is your precious possession? Is there something that you desire, be it a truck or Whatever else, sorry, truck's the only thing I can think of. Apparently, that's what I really want, is a truck. (laughs) Is there something that you desire more than people? Something you desire so much that you would lose a friend over in order to protect it or to keep it for yourself? If so, you need to let it go. You need to surrender it to God. To stop clinging so tightly to it and to the stuff of this world, which we are told is here today. And tomorrow is thrown into the fire. In addition to our material possessions, I believe we need to share our time with our brothers and sisters. For many of us, time is a more precious commodity than money or our stuff. It's a non-renewable resource that seems to be consumed by the tyranny of the urge and by all of these things that come up and, and, and take it away from us. And it's consumed by these things instead of the things that we really want it to be used for. In our family, much time is spent driving. Let's just, we could end there. Much time is spent driving um, to practices, to meetings, to, to games, to, to, to this, that, and everything else. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Becky and I were sitting down, and we were trying to figure out when to put up a Christmas tree sometime after Thanksgiving. And we sat down, and we figured out we had exactly one day where everyone was going to be home after 5 p.m. between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we didn't really feel like setting the tree up on the 22nd. So so we just kind of decided we needed to do it, even if we weren't all going to be there for a good chunk of time. We have to take advantage of the times that we do have together. We have to maximize, though, in order to make the best use of our time. So so carving out family time is important, but also taking time to demonstrate God's love to others is important as well. Relationships take time. Being a friend takes time. 
Sharing the gospel with people takes time to build that relationship, to to develop time and spend time with them. We cannot expect to speak the truth into people's lives if we do not take the time to be with people. Sometimes this means that we go and do stuff that other people like to do. Right? We, sometimes it means that we just go and be with another person. You know, I have this, this guideline, this rule in my life that, that whenever someone asks me to, as long as I am able to, I will go running with them. So if someone says, hey, Sean, can you come run eight miles with me? And I don't have anything else going on. I'm like, sure, let's go run eight miles. Someone calls and says, hey, you know, I'd love to go running with you this afternoon. I'll go running with them this afternoon if I, as long as I'm able to. And I do this because I figure if someone's asking me to run with them, they're doing so because they want my companionship. They want my time. And when I give it to them, I'm able to speak life and truth into their lives. Managing our time can be incredibly challenging, especially when we have young kids or or especially when there's a lot going on. It, It can be challenging to manage our time well. You know, to one extreme, we can be incredibly selfish with our time, and we can hoard it, and we cannot want to share it with anybody. And on the other extreme, we can be too selfless and give it away to everyone and leave us exhausted and burned out and, and tired and weary all of the time. Neither of those extremes is good or productive. We are called instead to live with balance in our lives. We're called to live with a margin of rest in our lives. We're called to give time to God and our family and our relationships and our jobs and ourselves. And balancing those demands on our time is important. And we need to make sure to give God time and to give other people proper amounts of time. Otherwise, what happens is we become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of God and his plan. We need to fight against the tendency to hoard our time, to hoard our free time. We need to fight against the tendency to waste our free time. And instead, we can give it away in relationship as an act of love. And John makes one more statement that I, that I really quickly want to, to go over because it resonates so strongly with me. He says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's easy to spout words. It's easy to, to say, I love you or I care about you. But those are only words without any meaning if, if they're spoken insincerely. It's much more difficult to sincerely back up our words with our actions. I firmly believe that people do, not, people do not care what we know until they know that we care. We can say all that we want. We can tell someone how wonderful they are, how much we love them. But if our actions do not denote a genuine care for them, then our words are hollow. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy and and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We are a resounding gong. We're a clanging cymbal. We're hollow noise, in other words, if we do not love our neighbors or our brothers or our sisters or our Lord with our actions. Our words must be a reflection of the sincere truth that is in our hearts and lives. 
Jesus demonstrated his love by what he did. The good Samaritan demonstrated his heart by taking care of a stranger. We must demonstrate our love for others through what we do. This is not possible. It's impossible for us to do, to truly love others fully and selflessly. It's impossible for us to do that without the Spirit of God in our lives. We cannot love God the way that he wants us to love him without first receiving his love for us. And we cannot love others the way that God wants us to love them without first receiving his love ourselves. We love, in other words. We are able to love because he first loved us. We must know God and his love in order for us to be able to show love to others. And that, in turn, shows love to our Father. So the challenge that I have for you this morning as we close is to embrace the love that God has for you. To allow his love, allow his grace to sweep through you and to change you. And then because of his love and through his power, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Love him not, not just with word or deed, but by loving others just as he has commanded us to. If we truly want to know Christ and make him known, we must start with love. Jesus loved radically and completely. He loved people who were like him. He loved those who were different. He, he, he loved those who liked him and those who despised him. He loved through his actions, by being a friend, by spending time with people, by genuinely caring about each individual. We are called to love as he loved. Who particularly is God calling you to demonstrate his love to today? Is it a friend, a spouse, a coworker, a neighbor? And how are you going to do that? A couple of days ago, I was, I was writing this message and I was thinking about how busy I am. And, and a friend texted me and said, hey, do you want to come over? We're having a group of guys over. We're going to watch the football game together. You want to come over Saturday night? And my first reaction, quite honestly, was, not really. You know, I, Saturday nights, I, I like to study my message. I like to, to get to bed at a decent hour. You know, I like to be kind of a homebody. And so, so my answer, you know, was not, yes, let me go give my time freely. But this guy, he doesn't know the Lord yet. And as I was thinking about it, as I was praying about it, as I was writing a message about showing love to others, it dawned on me that I probably should go and spend time with this guy and love this guy in a manner where, where I can be the light of the world in his life. And so I went, and I got home later than I wanted to, and I stayed up later than I wanted to last night. But you know what? It's worth it. It's easy for us to hide in our safe little bubbles. It's easy for us to love those people that are safe and those are kind to us. It's easy to love people on our own terms, and in our own time. But we are called by our Savior to get out of our comfort zones, and to love those who do not know him, to love those who dislike him, who dislike us, and who may behave differently than we do. This kind of love requires action. 
We cannot just stand by. We can just not stand on the street corner and shout, God loves you. We must get involved in people's lives. We must give our time, our energy, and our love to God and the people that he loves. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you loved us and that you demonstrated your love to us while we were still sinners and that Christ Jesus came and died for us. I pray, Lord, that the love that you have for us can empower us to love you and love others. I pray, Lord, that that out of the outflow of the love that you have, our love may grow. Use us, Lord, to share your love. And Lord, if if there's a part of us that, that doesn't love you, if there's a part of us that's struggling to understand how we can love you, I pray that you will even reveal to us now how we can love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and even reveal to us what may be catching in that area that's causing us to to balk at loving you. And Lord, I pray that you will just give us that particular person that you are calling us to share love with today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.